Welcome to this special episode of the Hidden Power Podcast with me, Philip Tottenham, and with my co-host, Ed Straw. Hi. Hi, again. This special episode is about political lobbying, and of course this has been quite a long-time theme of the Hidden Power Podcast. And yet now, at the end of April in 2021, it seems so topical that we decided to go ahead and do a special episode. So to kick off, we've heard a lot in recent weeks, those of us who've been stuck to the news, about what David Cameron's been up to with Greensill Capital and with James Dyson has been texting with Boris Johnson over tax and that kind of thing, which seems relatively innocuous. But all of this has led to a rethink or a slight review of the 2014 Lobbying Act, which seems to have allowed these things to happen without any rules or protocols being broken. And I thought it was interesting that Polly Toynbee in The Guardian very succinctly put the real purpose of the Lobbying Act forward. And she says the Lobbying Act was not aimed at business and politicians at all. Its whole purpose was to silence charities voluntary organisations and trade unions in the run-up to elections. Why on earth, she goes on, were the Lib Dems such passionate supporters of this gagging act in the coalition government? Because they lived in terror of the National Union of Students mounting a mighty election campaign against Nick Clegg's U-turn on student fees. The act clamped down on charities and unions running any campaigns that might sway voters for a full year before an election. If they spent more than £20,000, including on staff and officers, I mean £20,000, I don't know how much in the way of staff and officers you're going to get for that, they had to register with the Electoral Commission as if they were political parties. Now, I'm just going to play the David Cameron clip that we've been hearing so much on the news just to get... Because I, I think it's really interesting to get a fix on this sort of rather fatuous, paternalistic, and flagrantly hypocritical tone. Not so much to get at David Cameron, who is what he is and is a part of the system, but just to to get a real clear impression of where language signifies a contrary intent. Okay, here we go. It's the next big scandal waiting to happen. It's an issue that, frankly, crosses party lines and has tainted our politics for too long. It's an issue that exposes the far too cosy relationship between politics, government, business and money. I'm talking about lobbying. So I find that such an interesting clip to listen to, as I've outlined there before, but it seems to be such a common tool used in announcing and policy making and so on to say the precise opposite of what your true intent is and there's a, there's a piece in the conversation this week on strategic lying mm. uh, and you know so what you do is you know bloody well you're lying i mean the 350 million was the, probably the best example of that but you put it out there and even though it's countered and demonstrated conclusively to be a lie, 
Nevertheless, in terms of the way in which humans work, that particular lie becomes implanted in our heads, implanted in the narrative. So somehow what Cameron's saying there gets credibility. And I th- he said that in 2011, was it? Something like that? I think that. 2010. I think it was a few years before the act actually came into force. Yeah. And, and of course, he was just into office. So and it's like Trump saying, drain the swamp and so on. Exactly. Exactly um, right. Yeah. So, so you, you get all of this uh, complete and utter nonsense. And if you want to know how lobbying occurs and what to do about it, then don't ask a politician. Yes. I mean, the other problem with politicians is that they've got so used to the system in which they work that Cameron and Blair and others can say, well, the rules are absolutely fine in terms of what we're allowed to do. We, from the sidelines, mm. look at those uh, the behaviours and say, well, <laughs> it may be within the rules and it's totally wrong. One thing that's interesting about your experience is this sort of, um, I don't know if it's a moment of truth or a series of moments of truth that have opened your eyes to how things were really happening. And in particular, I wanted to get a fix on preferential lobbying has been such a sort of theme in our talks and in in your writing that it's gone from being yet another annoying thing to being really quite a central concern. Hmm. But I think that there was a point where it wasn't a central concern and you were innocently going about your business and then the light dawned on you that actually this isn't, you know, this isn't great. So when when did that happen? When was that first kind of step? I mean, I guess it was as I got involved in the the process of government, so this would be during the new Labour years, 97, well, prior to 97 in preparing to do things, 97 to 2010, and then after 2010, looking back, and you start i mean the most obvious one is there are all the deals that were done with murdoch over television rights newspaper ownership and so on and and satellite television monopoly and and the the premiership and and there's actually quite a consistent line that can be drawn from that lobbying through to the European Super League um, mm-hmm. that we saw this week. So I'm gradually seeing these things happening. I'm observing that actually a lot of the time you've got civil servants and ministers dealing with an issue which, frankly, they really very little grasp of. Mm-hmm. Um, a comment from someone in financial services that actually, if you, you know, bank, city and so on, that actually the only people who really know how the financial services sector works are people in it and then very few of them. Mm-hmm. So you're saying, well, hang on, these people are taking all these decisions. You know, they just don't have a grasp. I mean, the world's got so complex. And of course... The reason particularly in the UK that's happening is because uh, we have this generous civil service culture. That, so you know, when, so th- that's, again, another sort of prevailing theme. So when, when did, like, you must have made the connection at some point where you were seeing these, well, you were seeing these generalists kind of rather yeah. f- faffing around, yeah. and then you were seeing these interests who were sort of driving decision-making, and then you kind of put the two and two together. Yeah, and it it was actually... uh, So I wrote this report on the reform of the civil service. I mean, rather sort of akin to uh, Dominic Cummings now, um, or uh, until he left. And um, this is 2004. 
And that actually, despite backing from Blair, Powell, the head of the civil service, blah, 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 it, it absolutely got squashed. And then I realised that actually the problem wasn't just the civil service. The problem was the whole system of governing, mm. the political parties, the vetting. The so the, there's an element of it getting squashed that it's just the civil service service being resistant to reform. This is how we do things. We know what we're doing. Yeah. We don't need to be told that we don't know what we're doing because we do know what we're doing. And yeah. so that's kind of a natural kind of inertia in its own right. Mm. Mm. But then you're saying also it kind of opened the door to these deeper problems. Yeah, and in in order to uh, reform the civil service, then you would put more power with the government and the politicians in certain circumstances. Mm. And Peter Hennessy, the Lord and modern historian and sort of constitutional specialist, said, well, they have too much power already, the Mm. executive government which they do so we can't reform the civil service we have to keep the same format for it that was established in 1855 i kid you not wow now it's that point you start to look at the totality of it Um, i bumped i was didn't bump into i was interviewing a minister for the book i wrote after uh 2010 and talking to him about industry lobbyists and, and he said well Ed, you know, what's the alternative to talking to the industry? You know, listening to superficial civil servants and daft academics. Hmm. And he was making a point that actually in order to get real knowledge about an industry, you have to go to the industry. The industry is obviously going to give you a biased view. Hmm. And you start to put all of these things together and then you watch how lobbyists work. You see them, you know, I knew many of them. They operate in private. They've got very good address books. A lot of them were former politicians and civil servants themselves. They can pick up the phone and get access to a minister in a way that you or I can't. Also, I then had my PricewaterhouseCoopers hat on in that time where now and again, certainly the company, and I think sometimes even I, was hired to do what's called case making. So mm. you are trying on the basis of the best of the information you've got available to make the best case for the client. And you, so, you hang know, on a second. This is this is a completely legitimate activity that that people basically it's, it's normal for people to petition politicians or to petition yeah, people in power, and it's, it's also it's, completely okay for for business to petition politicians as well or is it is that is that where we get to a gray area this this is where you get to a gray area because lobbying we all lobby in various ways i could phone up my councillor now or 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 indeed i've been in touch with one of the officials at the council to Mm. try and get something done about the over tourism here well we can all do that the problem there's lobbying and then there's preferential lobbying and the problem comes when business i mean it could be a trade union it could be a a very powerful non-governmental organization it could be a a force like the police but it's business and industry that has the biggest impact on us Mm. and they can employ professional lobbyists i can't employ a professional lobbyist right so it's it's this question of time in a sense it's like an individual can't afford the time 
well, to lobby as hard as someone who's doing it as a full-time yeah, job. It's not just time. You may need half a million pounds, for example. If mm. I was going to do something serious about tourism here, you may need half a million pounds to employ lobbyists who have the connections, who will spend time whining and dining and talking to civil servants and politicians, who will commission reports from economics consultants and tourism specialists that demonstrate just mm. how much this industry produces. There's no chance whatsoever I can do that. The problem that all of this is by and large done behind closed doors, it's by and large done in secret. Sometimes the stuff comes so out. So the secrecy is a central part of the problem. The fact yeah. that no one comes out and says what they're doing, so that there's a kind of a lack of clarity. Sure. The ideal lobby is that no one sees it, no one hears about it, and even when the decision is taken, mm. no one realises that actually your company, your lobby firm was behind all of this. It's as if the government has decided, you know, with some sort of democratic mandate or through representative democracy to do this, when actually it's being fed and lobbied from the outside. And of course, it may well be that part of the whole lobbying process, and this is endemic in the States, revolves around political donations. So it may well be that the lobbyist has gone round one particular backdoor route and lobbied for its interests at the same time as making a donation to the Conservative Party or previously the Labour Party. Hmm. And, and of course, <laughs> the minister is sitting there knowing that, oh, these things are notionally separate, knowing that this company X has given us a, a million or so or whatever it is, and they want this change in policy, change in regulation, change in law in order to satisfy its interests. Broadband is a big issue at present, isn't it? The mm. quality of broadband, I mean, it is generally getting better, but I mean, from a very low base and still in some places almost non-existent. You know, this is 2021, for goodness sake, we're the fifth richest country in the world. This is a total scandal. Now, how did that come about? Well, there was the 1984 Telecoms Act, which privatised British Telecom. That's fine. But it left the core infrastructure, which is now called Openreach, with BT. For years and years and years, BT lobbied and pushed back, A, to hold on to that monopoly, and B, to protect its interests, and see to spend as little money as it could on updating the network mm. because that ate into current profits, which ate into current management's pay and shareholdings and share price and so on. So could you say that as an unforeseen consequence of privatisation, that their overall view became much more short-term and profit-focused rather than looking at long-term growth and service? I mean, you know, it's a debate to be had as to whether um, it, it is better or worse to have your telecoms industry uh, in the private sector. I think on balance, I would say, yeah, it is a good thing that uh, certainly the uh, telephony side mm. of it is. But the actual broadband infrastructure, you know, this is a utility 
This is, well, it's not just important for everyone, education and so on, absolutely vital for the functioning of all business. The notion of having that in a private sector monopoly, which is inevitably driven for profit mm. and not for the benefit of the nation, is utterly absurd. And the thing should have been taken out of the hands of BT when it started. In some countries, that, that common infrastructure is owned by all of the telecoms companies. They sort of have a co-op. Mm. Um, but I suspect the best way uh, would, this is another one of those things where actually put it in the public sector and yet it may be a bit bureaucratic and a bit slow, but you're going to get a better... Why would the public sector, I mean, a common holding between interested parties would seem like quite a good model. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I mean I'm not here to argue about models for uh, how you get the best broadband, but... If- but mm. I am here to argue that what we've got is the worst. Well, I suppose what we're really doing is tracing the link between our daily experience and the preferential lobbying. Yeah. And I sure. think that that's sort of one example of it. But again, in your investigations into systems of government, this has emerged as an absolutely central theme. So it's not just about broadband. Absolutely, because as we've looked at the thing in the round, as we've looked at the thing as a system, it's not just applying the theories and the thinking, but, I mean, it's almost like anyone could do this if we drew it for you on a piece of paper. It became more and more apparent that it is almost the killer. So Uh, hang on a second. That's a really interesting point to me is, is... Preferential lobbying appeared as a result of a process, of a process of analysis and a systems thinking process. So what what did that process look like? Because I I guess you had your hunches before you went into it, but you didn't specifically go in to prove that preferential lobbying was the problem. No, it wasn't. wasn't. I mean, that, that wasn't, I mean, I was aware of lobbying, but it wasn't like a big deal. There were much more important issues like, you know, how you construct the uh, second chamber, the House of Lords, for example. But what happens is that your understanding of how the system works expands. You see in practice the impact of a donation on behaviour and on decision-making. So, wait a Um, minute. So, you trace that back. You basically see... Behavior and decision making, and you ask the question: Well, why? Why, why is that why like they, that? Why are they doing that? And you know, there's the five whys. So mm. you know, why has that decision gone that way? Well, so this is a kind of root cause analysis where you're looking at various cause. outputs. I mean, there's quite a good example going on with the post offices at present. You know, this scandal over sub postmasters. You so know, do you want to I- give a headline for what what happened there, just for for people who haven't been following it? Um, well, like me. 900 sub-postmasters and mistresses, I think they're just called masters, were prosecuted by the post office for fraud, some of whom, including, I mean, notably, but, but along with a lot of other damage, a, a woman who was pregnant with her second child and she was jailed, for goodness sake. This is absolutely outrageous. And... This went on and on and on, despite all of these people who, you know, if you know a sub-postmaster, you'll know it's one of these sort of small post offices. You'll know they're pretty upright citizens and they're part of the community, despite people going, you know, how on earth have you got 900 bent sub-postmasters, for goodness sake? 
But it turned out that the fault lay with the software produced by a company called, uh, it was called Horizon, produced by Fujitsu. But why did the post office continuously believe the software rather than all of these sub-postmasters? And then why did the senior management of the post office not do very much? And then why did the board of directors of the post office not do very, well, nothing at all? Where did the board of directors come from? How were they appointed? So, so that's what you do. You go back and back and back and back, and you're looking yeah. to get to the basis of all of this. And then you go forward into the consequences. So you, you look at preferential lobbying, you look at the hold it has, you look at the way in which we are essentially powerless between elections. I don't, I don't know whether you think you have any influence over government between elections. I certainly don't. And that sense of powerlessness grows because most of the decisions are being taken through and via preferential lobbying. Then that right, so it's in the interest of preferential lobbying to keep up the theatre of democracy, but to make yeah. sure that it doesn't actually have any impact. Absolutely. And, and of course, the newspapers play a big role in that as well. And then from that powerlessness, well, you know, people are getting hacked off you get a rise of populism mm. and populist parties. You get Brexit, you get Trump. But it's also a cause of inequality because it maintains the neoliberalism, global monetary system, in the way in which it increasingly shoves money towards the very top end in the distribution. And it means that the people at the bottom actually often get poorer of course, has had a major impact on the environment. So the roll call of industries through preferential lobbying that have resisted the responsibilities for not ruining our life support system called mm. the biosphere, nature, the environment, the roll call of those industries is absolutely enormous. You know, the oil, gas, pharmaceuticals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and these people have very, very deep pockets. And they have deep pockets. They're getting subsidised from government. So they're saying, look, you know, if you... And this is the credible threat to even the Jews. Look, if you don't keep subsidising us, well, you're going to lose 50,000 jobs. If you don't keep subsidising us, I mean, we're just going to walk away from that pipeline and it's going to start spewing oil out into the North Sea. And, of course, there you are as a civil servant. You've probably got a humanities degree from Oxford, for Christ's sake, or a PPE. What will you know about oil pipelines? But that's world? amazing to me. I mean, do, is it not a given that if you're in that position that you draw in industry specialists to help advise? I mean, surely that's well, what... It, it, but you just said it, draw in industry specialists. Oh, fine. Thanks very much. Here I am. I represent the industry. Now I'm going to tell you what to do. But, I mean, I'm, just to push back on that a little bit, Ed, you know, there's a sort of systems thinking angle on that, surely, insofar as well, you, the, no, the entire mean, I, industries aren't, you know, aren't, industries aren't corrupt from top to bottom. Most people actually well, understand this, this, what the issues are. And if you can get, get yeah. a, a broad... It, representation of yeah. stakeholders, as it were, then you would get some level of good sense. 
Exactly, and that's that's one of the things you absolutely have to do in terms of stopping preferential lobbying. You have to say, right, we've got a level playing field here. We are obliged because of the process of vetting. We are obliged to get stakeholders' interests represented here. Um, we're going to do this through drawing in. And again, you do it openly and transparently. You don't do it behind closed right. doors. So this, this is, brings us to this question of how is lobbying done properly? And I think one thing that you've landed on there is really this question of transparency. So it's, you know, if people like, obviously individuals can call up their MPs and this kind of thing, but then there's a level of lobbying that involves, you know, a certain amount of hospitality and, you know, cashmere conditions, all this kind of thing. There's a point where that is somehow done in secret and out of the public eye. And that's where for a business, presumably, there's there's a vulnerability to look like you're just kind of grafting. And that's the thing that a responsible or a visionary company leader would be conscious to avoid. Yeah, I mean, sort of yes and sort of no, but I'm afraid you're ignoring the financial markets who demand mm. that no matter how visionary, virtuous, ethical you are, that you will maximise profits and maximise share price. And there are leaders, the former chief executive of Unilever was going down this route as much as he could mm. in terms of this was in particularly in relation to the climate change and the biosphere and so on and and trying to make Unilever as sustainable a business as possible. And he did do good work. However, get away from the notion, please, of good and bad people. Mm. You know, these are all people in jobs. They're doing their jobs. Your job is to maximize profit and shareholder return. That means you will lobby because mm. the governmental system is open to lobbying and can be swayed and so on. So, you know, the regulator for electricity, we will lean on as hard as possible to increase electricity prices as much as possible. It's important to emphasize here that this preferential lobbying is a zero sum game. It's wealth appropriation. Right. These people are never creating wealth. This is not, you know, even if you don't like Apple, I quite understand, but at least Apple are making good products. Once lobbying gets into play, it's all about bending regulations, bending laws to take money. So this is the difference between wealth extraction or rent seeking, as some people call it, and value creation. So the the sort of the the capitalist ideal, like good capitalism is about value creation. And poor capitalism is really like being a robber baron where it's just extracting money without offering any And And I mean, Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, often quoted by right-wing conservatives, you know, oh, you know, privatise this. Well, this this is really in support of that sort of neoliberal Hayekian um, invisible hand. That's what they seem to like about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Adam Smith was absolutely clear that there had to be a moral dimension, an Mm. ethical dimension to the market and to capitalism. And that's got squeezed out and out and out. I was listening to a podcast that was saying there used to be ethics, and I remember this, there used to be the virtue ethic in business 
up until about 1990. Then Milton Friedman came along and said, well, the only interest uh, responsibility for a company is uh, shareholder return. So that tended to go out the window, but companies would still obey the law mm. and sometimes they would do something that was good for society but this is um, neoliberalism and, in a nutshell because really yeah, the, the, it was this various parties have always tried to offload any question of moral value and bring about an intellectual value instead that something along the lines of scientism or you know showing yeah. that the, all that matters is profit and that's yeah. the basis of morality and yeah. everything else is secondary course so we've ended up with you know the climate disaster big inequality by the thirsty getting collapsing etc 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 well uh the notion that you can uh, do all of this without a moral or ethical dimension mm-hmm. i mean obviously it suits uh people we had johnson the other week saying oh it was greed that got the vaccines mm-hmm. the guy's just trying to say actually my behavior johnson's behavior is entirely okay well it's not okay and Mm. it's ruining the world actually but you you look at it uh systemically you look at it coldly you cannot run the world without some moral and ethical dimension well i mean the moral the morality and the ethics ultimately amount to pragmatic considerations we need to be able to breathe and, and eat and these yeah. are very simple well, things. Well, and, and the exactly. ethical part of it is simply reducing the complication of the connection between what we need to to, to breathe and eat mm. and mm. our behavior. And that's yeah. that's all that the ethics, as far as I can see, really amounts to yeah. is just the, yeah. the pragmatics of it. And we don't have corruption. Mm. And cor- corruption is, well, it's waste. Corruption takes money from you and I. Preferential lobbying is in practice corruption. There are systemic dimensions to this. And, you know, if you look systemically at anything, one of the things you need is to have feedback, as we've talked before, on mm. all the uh, results and outcomes and consequences of everything an organisation does. If you do a lobby, and as in our system, you know, regulation of law, uh, just a decision pops out, and there is no feedback on it. There is then no accountability for that decision. And the lobbyist is very, very happy. Yeah. So, so they, you know, they they have feedback. They you know, they've got the result they want and continue. Yeah. But in terms of the result for society, the cost to taxpayers, the cost in higher rents, I mean extraordinarily small thing that there's a little tube, I think it's called Thursday Plantation of tea tree oil, which if you're feet between the toes get sore you put on a dose of this and it goes Mm. and it works it has no side effects well big pharma decided they didn't want alternative medicines preventing them from coming up with some real or concocted drug that they could put out for this and they lobbied Brussels. This stuff happens as much in Brussels as mm. it does in Westminster. Mm. But so they lobbied Brussels, a load of bureaucrats there, wine dined and all the rest of it and influence. And they scrapped being able to get hold of this tube of stuff, which is so efficacious. You have mm. to buy it from Australia now. And the reason I mention that is because if you take that and multiply that 
hundreds of thousands of times, then that's what's happening to us. So that, that's what really makes it a systemic issue, is that it's, yeah. it's, it's throughout the system, through, yeah. throughout our economy and our lives yeah. and our relationship with governments. This again reminds me of the film that we posted on one of the episodes going back a few weeks on chaos and feedback and the the effects of feedback and how vast these effects can be the small changes creating massive effects and i think what you're saying that the the fact that this is so pervasive which endemic yeah endemic exactly has had this deleterious effect across culture and across the environment this is obviously a special episode but our whole series is about looking at the pre-flight checklist for planet earth and what we need to ensure a comfortable future Mm. and from what you say lobbying can be dealt with like there are ways of dealing with with lobbying all all, i mean interestingly all all of the uh, the 26 uh, systemic principles the principles for systemic government if they were in place in constitutions um preferential lobbying wouldn't happen there will be lobbying, level playing field lobbying, where your interest and mine and others were equally at the table and things were done openly. Preferential lobbying would die, and thank goodness that it would. I mean, we identified in the course of our work these nine conditions that enable, or in, a, in any system of government, the more of them that are present, the easier it is to lobby. By the way, uh, Westminster government, has all nine. Uh, <laughs> but I just want to get back to, I think it's really interesting how you derive these principles. I mean, was this partly from experience and insight or did you apply a sort of a, a process through which to come to these outputs? You're trying to, which is called viable system. So, so I mean, if you, if you wanted to go back to the, the theories, as it were, yeah, there's viable systems uh, method. And... You know, one of the things that you are looking at there is that, to repeat it, this feedback is absolutely fundamental to a viable system. You need multiple perspectives, and almost by definition, preferential lobbying is the very opposite of a multiple perspective. Right, I see. So basically, Um, you're looking through the framework of these systems thinking tools. and. In looking at those things and saying, well, do we have diverse perspectives, for example, you're saying, well, actually, in many of these decisions, we don't have diverse perspectives. We just have the perspective of the person with the money. And in terms of feedback, are we getting the feedback on this law that would correct the course? And you're looking at why we're not getting the feedback on the law. And you see, oh, it's because there's this interest that's created a sort of wall that stops that from happening. And then you look at the process, which we've talked before, of politicians selling policies Mm. and this thing, papyrus. So, you know, how do they go about trying to do stuff? Mm. Well, problem analysis produces a policy which goes through an approval process, which is implemented, and there we have a solution. Mm. 
So that's the, that's the acronym, papayas, that brings papaya. you through that process. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then there's a bit of an end state fallacy going on there as well. That there's a solution yeah. and then we can just forget about it. Yeah, the notion that you can policyize an end state into existence, which is the notion on which every election is based, is entirely fallacious. Mm. Every policy is in practice an experiment. But given that fatal flaw, then mm. it says, well, actually, we want to change a regulation, let's say, around the size of holes in trawler nets. Well, okay, why do you want to do that? Well, we, we want to limit the number of fish that are caught. You want to do that because you want to create the sustainable fish stocks. Well, let's leave to one side for a minute how you, you know, other means of creating. Let's say, fine, we're going to do that. You don't know that by reducing the size of the holes in trawlers' nets or indeed enlarging them, that that policy will be landed, that purpose will be mm. delivered. You're going to have to experiment and you're going to yeah. find that actually, well, half the trawlers don't take any notice of you, your regulation is impossible to enforce. Mm. Actually, they come up to some different technology which completely bypasses what you're trying to do. So, like the the use of radar, for example. So, you're looking at a system which is completely muddled and founded on a number of tenants that simply don't work. Mm. And so, again, we step back and we say, well, okay, we're not going to have policies, we're going to have designs for action. Okay, so so we're trying to get over there. We would design a route through to that, and that's where all of the stakeholders and everyone else comes in. We're going to have to have repeated feedback as we go along in order to see if we're getting to that destination. Right, so some of these, I mean, I I remember seeing a, um, I think it was Hillary's project plan for ascending Everest, where there were so many trips up to one level to set up a base camp and right. then so many trips up to the next level, set up the next base camp. And then, you know, there's the sort of eventually so on and so forth until they got to the final bit where Hillary and Tenzing get to, to the top. But it certainly was no direct route. There was plenty of trying and failing and engineering written yeah. into the entire process, yeah. which I think for yeah. complex things is what you're saying. That for, for... And there's another system thinking concept. It's called redundancy. Mm. The need to build in redundancies into your system these are things that we may or may not need yes Um, like like not designing a bridge exactly for its maximum weight but putting an extra bit on that bridge just in case a slightly bigger thing comes over it and and then we may need to take some extra equipment oh we might need to keep twice the number of hospital beds against a business as usual mm. or a health as usual situation just in case because you get but surges because you know you'll get surges and you don't know exactly how big that surge is yeah. going to be and you don't even know you're going to get surges but the more redundancy as the germans built in redundancy to the, their provisional hospital beds we didn't build in redundancy to our hospital. I mean, this is an engineering, this isn't just a systems thinking concept. This is a, a, oh, a sort of basic all, engineering concept, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, all of these all of these concepts, you can take several steps back to thinking systemically. Mm. But 
but that doesn't just apply to systems of government. It applies to, yeah, as you say, engineering, it applies to biology, it applies mm. to organisation and so on. Yeah. So to get back to your nine principles, so you've, you've right. used these many and various um, concepts and, and tools of, of systems thinking and engineering, and you've come up with, with these nine conditions that yeah. in their various forms together or separately help assist the nefarious activities of pre- preferential yeah. lobbying. So, so you've got uh, preferential access to the decision makers, government decisions made in private. Well, let's just slow down like, a little bit. So preferential access to decision makers is Dyson having, you know, texting Boris Johnson. I mean, essentially, if you can't phone up Johnson to get your tax sorted out, then neither can Dyson or anyone right. else. Okay. It's, the government decisions made in private, um, I think we've covered. Yeah. The low subject knowledge of ministers and officials. Right. Few yes, mentioned that. So that's that's the generalist the civil servants not knowing, you know, being being sort of yeah. pushed around as it were. Yeah. Few restrictions on political party funding. So you, you okay. donations policies. I mean, it's, it's blatant in the states where I'm standing for Congress and. Um, every two years in fact and so i'm always on the phone raising money right into it as the example i used in one of the papers um who are trying to protect their tax filing software um against tax simplification measures uh, being proposed in congress so hello into it um and into it are uh, yeah we're delighted to give you half a million dollars for your next campaign pause we've got quite a problem because this tax simplification is going to knock our business mm. pause candidate well i'm very sorry to hear that and i can really see that's quite a problem mm. end of conversation both parties know absolutely that although no deal has been done, that he's getting 700,000 in return for voting against tax simplification. Mm. So, I mean, that's that's the way it works. And, and it works, it, it, well, it can be as agrarious over here. Mm. So you've got that, you've, you've got patronage, you know, can dish out honours and reward people, but you've also got patronage in the sense of, I'm a civil servant. I work for a regulator. Um, Oh, that's interesting. The telecoms company is by and large going to be paying better. Mm. The telecoms company builds up a relationship with a particular person who's instrumental in their regulation. The regulator is sitting there knowing that maybe in two or three, two years time, he'd really like a lucrative job. How independent is that person going to be? Well, of course, this relates very specifically to Lex Greensill and um, the civil servant whose name escapes me is Haywood, who they they worked together in Goldman Sachs. They had that great relationship. And suddenly Greensill had this champion right at the very heart of government. We've talked about feedback and the absence of it. Weak checks and balances in the system of governing in relation to laws, regulations, statutes, decisions. Now, a law will go through quite a process, usually, in Parliament, of vetting. 
but that that very much depends on the knowledge of the vetters, of course, and it also depends on the government deciding not to just mm. push it through and right. forcing it piece to vote in favour. But laws usually get a level of scrutiny. But we can post the rest in the show notes because yeah. it's interesting to look at them and to have a think about how you see them play out in, in public life. You know, you've got those nine. And if you want to genuinely do something, well, not just do something about preferential lobbying, but it's a scourge and you want to remove it, then you have to change constitutions. Right. And if you go, oh, that's all terribly difficult, then I'm afraid you don't want to change preferential lobbying. You're accepting it as it is. So this is, I mean, this is a a key result of your analysis, really, is that the sweet spot is the constitution. That's the thing that that changing that will change everything. Yeah, absolutely. In the States, um, and actually we don't have this one here, but in the States, because you have politicised appointments of the judiciary Mm. at the federal level, you may have seen all of the fuss about the uh, appointment by President Stroke Congress of the next Supreme Court judge. And this happens all the time. Well, these days, the Democrats will be trying to get in a Democrat-leaning judge. The Republicans will be trying to get in a Republican-leaning judge. Hmm. As it happens, they've got more Republican-leaning judges in. So despite the fact that Congress passed an act to limit in 2001, I think it was, to limit political party donations, the Supreme Court said, oh, no, 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 this is an an affront to the uh, freedom of speech amendment in the US Constitution because uh, actually unlimited political party donations favour the Republicans because they're more... That rather emphasises the point you can't leave it to a government of the day or a parliament of the day to pass acts. You need this stuff in the constitution where it can't be, you know, it's put up high on a shelf in yeah. a tamper-proof box far away from the politicians. Right. And, and it's us, the people, that decide if that's going to be changed. So briefly, to, to, to end on a more positive note... What does good lobbying look like? Good lobbying. So, I mean, I'm, um, I know, you know, making offshore wind turbines for the sake of argument. So there you are, you're making wind turbines. Uh, It would help to get more wind turbines installed. I mean, let's, uh, to allow them to be installed on land. Hmm. Um, which uh, onshore, which you know they've been effectively banned in the UK, in in England, and um, so okay, you know, stand up in public and make your case and hmm. say, look, I am lobbying for this. There's yeah. absolutely nothing wrong for that. Other people can say. I am lobbying. Let's have and companies can do this as well. I mean, it's not unthinkable yeah, yeah, yeah. for companies, as I'm sure, you know, people like the Body Shop, Nike, and all these people have, have yeah. taken a stand on various points. Yeah, and you're, I mean, you're quite right to draw my attention to uh, that there are some ethical companies around that do behave properly, but typically they will only be uh, family-owned or individually-owned businesses, right. not 
ones on the end of the global monetary system, neoliberalism. Well, I, I would have. It's it, that's been, in a sense been the elephant in the room, and I have avoided getting into all my great new insights from reading the finance curse. But um, for people who want to to get a real insight into the sheer um, power of London and uh, offshore banking uh, as a sort of global monetary effect of neoliberalism i mean it's the whole point of neoliberalism is is that it allows people just you know bankers create these incredibly abstruse uh instruments and run riot whereas uh what was set up after the second world war the, the Bretton woods system was very much geared to it, it it took into account the very bad effects of global capital sort of skipping around from one place to another and the division yeah. between the capital and the countries where where yeah. it was deployed and where rents were taken and how this, yeah. for example, had led to um, Nazi Germany. Um, yeah. And so the Bretton, Bretton Woods was set up in order to stop that happen, happening again so that the so trade would be easy and international flows of capital would be made very kind of restricted. And of course, the bankers hated that. And that was really the roots of the whole neoliberalist project. I will put a link to the finance curse, which I should thank my brother for for sending it over to me. Um, Yeah, thank you, Mark. Put that in the show notes because it is just a great read and very enlightening and puts all of this into into a perspective and it's actually on your one of your preferential lobbying uh articles uh in the comments somebody was saying well, what do you mean by neoliberalism i think this book really spells it out in in detail <laughs>